course, I just came across a blobfish. Oh, God. Okay, well, apparently in the actual ocean, they don't look that bad. What? How? Blobfish, apparently, like, by the time they're taken out of, like, the ocean and we get them, like, on Earth, our pressure is slightly different from how they would actually look. Looking at it, I'm seeing it. Okay, so that looks like a normal fish, but the thing next to it looks like an old man that's gooey. episode of My Favorite Feminist. My name is Megan, and I'm here with my co-host, Milana. You're listening to the tri-weekly podcast that explores feminist figures in the arts and sciences. I'm an artist located outside of Richmond, Virginia, where I'm on traditional Powhatan land. And I'm your friendly neighborhood science gremlin, recording from traditional Lenape land in Philadelphia. Today we're going to learn about an African-American abstract painter, And an educator. And also, on my end, we're gonna explore the sea with a Spanish marine biologist. Oh, that'll be fun. Mm -hmm. What was the last time we did a marine biologist? Uh, Might have been the first season. Okay, so it's been a while. Yeah. Let's see. I think on my end today, it's been a few episodes since we've done an abstract painter. I don't know. I think I avoid marine biology, honestly, because every time I think about a marine biologist or I look into marine biology, I am often reminded that, you know, we're fucked. What, just in the the grand scheme of global warming? Yes, we're fucked. I would wager any branch of life sciences would kind of bring about that same feeling. I'm very sad. And I'm going to bring you guys down a little bit, but just a little bit. Okay, well, I'm happy to say my segment is not depressing as fuck. Oh, this is exciting. Yeah, today I'm happy to say I'm covering another artist who enjoyed a long career, received recognition in their lifetime, and has had renewed art world interest since their passing. Yay! Yeah, so today I'm covering 20th century African-American abstract painter and educator Alma Thomas. Alma Thomas. I don't think I've ever heard of her. I hadn't really either although i tend to focus a lot on sculptors because i'm a sculptor and i can be really biased sometimes but when i came across alma i was like oh my goodness i worked with a woman when i was in college and worked Mm -hmm. in a restaurant and she she was known as miss alma miss alma yeah that's what i thought of right away she was a very sweet woman in her 60s and you're Mm -hmm. like why are you working at a restaurant as a server Miss Alma, very nice, and at any chance she would get would completely steal tables from you. <laughs> yeah. Just yeah. steal them? I mean, you know, if you're working in a restaurant and for your tables, like, usually there's a rota, mm-hmm. you know, what customers get sat where. Yeah. And she, oh, I don't know, baby, I don't know, I don't know. And just, like, walk away. Miss <laughs> Alma, that was my two-top. <laughs> what are you doing? It's a slow Wednesday. We can't be fighting over tables. <laughs> They're like, I am $230 away from not giving a shit and not needing to take any more shifts this month. Oh, my Come God. Come on. Yeah. <laughs> Damn it, Miss Alma. I know. I know. But that is not the type of Miss Alma that we have today. I guess to her students, she would be known as Miss Thomas. And by all accounts, she seems like she was probably a really sweet teacher. So I highly doubt today's artist would steal tables from you. No. No. Definitely not. the restaurant job you had during college. <laughs> that technically paid the bills, but you... I didn't like it. No, no, she was not happy and smelled often like pancakes and waffles. 
That's not important. Anyway, I paid for my art degree, and look at what that's got me. I'm only 50-something grand in debt, whatever. Anyway, um, for today, we are going back to 1891. Oh, dear. Here we go. Yes, yes, where the smell of waffles and pancakes can't haunt me. Um, yeah, so we're actually going all the way down to rural Georgia, and that is where Alma was born into a middle-class family. Okay. What part of what part of rural Georgia do we have a... It just said, like, Columbus, Georgia. They oh, okay. moved away, so I didn't bother looking where in Georgia. That's fair. Yeah. But, yeah, when I read that, I was like, ooh, we're in the late 1800s with in a black Georgia. family yeah. in Georgia, in rural Georgia. Yeah. I was like, oh, this this might not be a feel-good episode today. But it works out. It does work out, which is nice. So Alma, she was the oldest of four daughters. And by all accounts, it seems like her parents were pretty well off. Okay. Yeah. I'm like, that's impressive. Because again, African-American family, rural South. Right. You don't expect this at all. Yeah. Especially because like most likely her grandparents were slaves. Yeah, we're not that far past yeah. like, the Civil War at all. Do you know what they did, like mom and dad did? So her dad was a businessman, and he was involved in the local church, and then her mom was a seamstress. Yeah, okay. I've got no details on her sisters at all. But, I mean, by all accounts, like, you know, family was well off. It seemed like her parents really encouraged the best for their children. From an early age, wanted to expose them to history and the arts and culture. And apparently they would even host these, like, literary and artist salons in their house. Oh. Yeah. So they, like, invite people to come and give talks, like, in the living room of their, like, hilltop Victorian house. What? That, like, overlooked the town in this really nice neighborhood. That's, that is, that's goals right there. It seems like Alma's parents' determination to provide the best for their children is what prompted them to move away in 1907. So at that point, Alma's 15, and they went from living in rural Georgia up to Washington, D.C. Yes. Yes, great choice. Yeah, so, like, even for Alma, coming from, like, a prominent, affluent family. Yeah. In her hometown, like, she's black, so things are racist as fuck. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Like there's as the eldest daughter, like I think she reached, you know, going to high school age and there's no high school in the area that would serve black students. Oh, yeah. So they were like, no, they they gave up the com- comfortable life they had built and they kind of started all over again, you know, hoping that things would be better for their children. Yeah. And for Alma, it was like I said, I don't have details on her sisters, so I don't really know what happened, but I like to think they all equally had the chance to, like, make something of themselves if they wanted to. Yes. Yeah. Like, they were placed in an area where they had resources that previously they were, like, denied. Yeah, and you got to do what's best for your kids. And, you know, of course, things weren't perfect in D.C. Like, racial discrimination was still very much a reality. But the city had a sizable African-American population, and that did offer a support system to others who were fleeing the super severe racial discrimination of the South. Mm-hmm. Everybody was heading on north. Great migration. <laughs> <laughs> so part of that support system were various schools that provided quality education to black students. You know, something the family could not get down in Georgia. Right. So dates are kind of spotty for Alma while she's a teenager and, like, going into her 20s. But we do know that she first took art classes at a technical high school 
saying that being in art classes that it was quote just where I belong. Oh, it's like yeah, so you. I think right away, like she fell in. I know. Oh my god, you guys should have seen her in high school. She like lived in that little corner of the high school. Oh, even back in elementary school, that yeah. was always my favorite class. <laughs> yeah, and then okay, so you'll like this. So after high school. Alma enrolled at the Minor Teachers Normal School. Yay, Normal School! Yes, it's so funny. You brought up what Normal Schools were a few episodes ago, and now I'm coming across them everywhere. Every time. Yeah, so no surprise, she went there to study to be a teacher. Did the Normal School turn into, like, an education college in a regular university? I think it has since been absorbed into or joined forces with another institution, so it has a slightly different name today. But, like, at this point, you know, we're talking, like, the 19-teens. And I know, as you've covered with a few other scientists, in the late 19th century, early 20th, becoming a teacher was, like, a respectable career for a woman. Yeah, it was, like, the one of the only things you could do as a woman. Yeah, outside of being, like, a wife and mother. Yeah. Or a nanny. So, yeah. So, Alma gets her teaching degree. She teaches art for a little bit and theater mm-hmm. out in Delaware. Yeah. And she's like, yeah, okay, this is cool. But heads back to D.C. in her late 20s to enroll at one of the leading historically black colleges and university. Howard University. Oh, I was looking at Howard for a little bit. They have a cool, good medical program. Yeah, I mean, back in the late 1800s, they had a solid program. Currently, they've got a really solid program. Yeah. They're still like a really renowned university. Yeah, so almost she wanted to go there. She focused on studying art, and she was actually the very first Howard University graduate from their art program. Stop. How did, wait, was she the only one in her class? She wasn't the only one, but I think she was just the first one to, like, go through and graduate. And that was in 1924 when she was 33. Oh, that's so cool. She was, she was there on, like, ground level when things were just starting up for, for that department. Very cool. Um, and then fast forward a few years later in 1934, she goes to Columbia where she gets her master's in education. Oh, Okay. From Alma's 1924 graduation from Howard up to 1960, Alma worked as a public school art teacher in D.C. Okay. So she earned her, she earned her master's, and then she even spent a semester in Europe through a study abroad program at the Tyler School of Art at Temple University in Philly. Stop! Where one of us went. Ah, uh, yes. I'm not proud. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, so through that program... Through Tyler, like, she went to Paris, and she studied still lifes and landscape paintings of the Impressionists. Yeah, they're good for the um, the studying abroad thing. Yeah, so Alma was juggling, getting additional degrees, also taking more classes, studying abroad, all while working as an art teacher. Okay. And by one account, I mean, she, she was devoted to her students. Yeah. Organizing art exhibitions and lectures and art clubs for them. So fostering their creativity, all while this full-time job provided Alma the financial ability to create art part-time. Okay. So she got to get a little bit of her, like, do things for herself, you know? Yes. And, like, I don't doubt that Alma enjoyed teaching, Mm -hmm. but I think given that, like, one, how hard it is to be a full-time artist even today, and then two, how receptive the art world was to black artists in the mid-20th century – which was not receptive no, not at, all. at all. Unless you um, like lived in Harlem. Even then, even yeah. then, you were kind of excluded. I, I think Alma had to be a teacher in order to make a living. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
I think that was just kind of probably the most enjoyable option for her. Mm-hmm. And again, I think it's something she legitimately really enjoyed doing. Mm-hmm. I hear teaching is, yeah, it's pretty. It can be rewarding. Yeah, not my cup of tea, but as a visual artist, that can be a really great way to make enough money that you can, you know, teach and then do your own work additionally. Yeah, yeah. So, not going to knock it. That's what plenty of people have been doing for, like, decades. Centuries. Yes. Yes, yes, yes. So, throughout the years, Alma, she's teaching, and she's also exhibiting her artwork in group shows. And it seems like Alma's work during this period is conventional. So... I've covered a few contemporaries of Alma, mm-hmm. so like Elizabeth Catlett, and the other artists that have, were working at this time that I've covered, they have like way more information on them than Alma. Okay. So it's very, it's very scarce. It is. Yeah. So especially with her early mid-career work, I couldn't find any examples of it. That's like at all. Not great. Like nothing. Like I have no idea. Like I'm like, what happened to this early artwork? Yeah. <laughs> Where did oh, it I go? Have... Like she was exhibiting work. What is it and where did it go? Maybe it got lost in a fire. I thought of that because that did happen to one artist that we covered. No, I'll say that given that I'm not like an art historian or scholar, like I don't know why. There's just no online examples of her like early mid-career work. You're right. It could have been damaged. Once her older work started taking off, she could have just thrown out her earlier work. Yeah. Maybe it was bought up by private collectors or maybe just disregarded as the work of a public art teacher. Mm. Like, I don't know. It's all speculation on my part. I have no idea. Yeah. But I will wager that racism did play some role in that. Mm, Of course it did. (laughs) I know. I know. So being a black artist in America is hard. I mean, with our institutional systematic racism, it's it's hard now and it was hard back in the mid-1900s. So with previous African-American artists we've covered working during the same period as Alma, like we've seen how the American art market actively sought out to exclude black artists. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And like as a result, like black artists created their own artist network to support one another and to exhibit their work. Yeah, stay strong. Numbers, baby. Numbers. Yeah. So Alma, she worked within one of those black-led support systems in D.C., fostered in part by her alma mater, Howard University. Oh, yes. Yes. See? See? I want to be a part of a university like that. So it's really cool. So two of the founding members of Howard's art department also founded a black-owned and run nonprofit art gallery in 1947. Stop. Yeah. The Marnette Aiden Gallery. And by then, Alma was 56, and she served as vice president of it. That's amazing. I don't know for how long. I don't know the dates. But so not but only was she helping to run it, she was also exhibiting her work in the gallery as well. And that chick was on her CV. Yeah. And the gallery was pretty unique because they would show art of, like, anyone. Like, it didn't matter the race of the artist. And that was pretty unusual because a lot of the time, galleries would just show white artists. Mm-hmm. That's all they wanted. Yeah. But meanwhile, they were like, no. Like, you can come. Everyone's equal here. You can we'll show your work. Uh On top of helping to run the gallery, Alma was also really active in the black creative and intellectual scene of D.C. Okay. Yeah, so it was the same type of atmosphere that her parents tried to encourage down in Georgia. So she was involved in, like, various organization institutions throughout her life. After 30 years of working as an art teacher, Alma retired in the early 1960s at the age of 69. Uh, She had arthritis. That was a contributing factor why she stepped away from teaching. But that didn't stop her from painting. Okay. And, like, during this time, like, she never married or had kids at all. She was just focused on being a teacher and her artwork. 
1966, she's 75. Howard University reaches out and was like, hey, Emma, love your work. Can we do a retrospective? Okay. And for any artist, like, that's a really big deal. Fuck yeah. But, I mean, like, it's your life's work being shown. Yeah. So, of course, Emma was like, yes. But she really wanted to create some new work for the show. That was the catalyst for Alma starting a whole new body of work. And that's what she's famous for. Oh, my God. This use of color. Yes. It is crazy. Milana just Googled her artwork. So... Going into the late 1960s, Alma's work, it's bright, it's bold, and to me, it's fun. And it's, it's also very different from that mysterious work that we can't actually see that she was previously creating. So whereas before she was doing really traditional kind of still lifes and portraits, suddenly her work is like mosaic-like patterns of the saturated colors and these really loose but like regimented patterns. You know, this kind of reminds me some of them kind of reminds me of what was the name of that other abstract artist you did where um she did a a giant piece that was like based off of like the roots of like yams yes you're thinking of australian indigenous artist emily i forget her last name begins with the k okay yes that's what it reminds me of yeah so one thing that i think is interesting so knowing that she already had arthritis when she started painting these new pieces Mm -hmm. and myself having like a repetitive stress injury in both my hands like I've had moments where I've had to stop or limit my painting or sculpting because my hands can only do so much so having had that experience like it totally makes sense to me her sense of brushwork on these paintings knowing she had some mobility issues oh, okay that is really intense because it seems like she took her brush and you know it dipped in the color and just press against the canvas uh-huh. and just build up all these like press marks yeah And that was her technique for painting. Instead of being very brushy or blendy with this newer work, she would just kind of press and repeat and repeat and repeat over and over and over again. Oh, yeah, that must have been really hard. And yeah, like you, the paint isn't translucent. Like she definitely, there are definitely layers of the same color on it. Like it's bright and it's bold and it's. Yeah. So in the early 1970s, and at this point she's in her early 80s, Alma, she's working with acrylic on canvas. And initially, she's creating these, like, multicolor, concentric, or striped patterns in her repeating brush strokes. And initially, you're just, like, she's going crazy with color because it's like a whole rainbow that she's working with. And she said about it, quote, Through color, I've sought to concentrate on beauty and happiness rather than on man's inhumanity to man. Mm. Yeah, so through her painting, she really wanted to focus on color and kind of form. And obviously, working abstractly, had no interest in any representational or figurative work mm-hmm. at this point. Had totally given up on it. Or rather, totally refocused on new content. Mm-hmm. So going into the early, mid-1970s, Alma's more deliberate in her color choices, and her brush strokes slightly change, and for me, they call to mind, like, the impressionistic paintings that she studied decades prior while she was in Paris. Okay. So there's more, like, layering in her application of paint, and it softens some of the edges, but it still utilizes, like, the same repeating, like, brush mosaic pattern that is characteristic of Alma's work from this period. And I there's a few pieces that I just really love. One's this kind of, like, soft gray white that's like a a white dogwood is what she took inspiration from okay maybe the bark of it 
it's pretty fun because these things are super open open ended in terms of interpreting what could have potentially potentially inspired them. I currently am looking at Milky Way with those soft edges, but let me see if I can find. It's more okay. Blue. I I don't know that one by name, but I also know that with the 1969 moon landing, mm-hmm. that inspired a whole line of work. Oh, from okay. these paintings. Very cool. So going into her 80s, like Alma wanted to paint bigger and bigger, and she maxed out in size with her 1976 painting, Red Azalea's Singing and Dancing Rock and Roll Music. What? Yeah, it's it's roughly four feet by 13 feet. It's it's huge. So it's like these three panels that comprise the whole paintings, a white background, and then in fairly organic red brushwork. She starts with her typical, like, mosaic style on the left-hand side, really dense, and then gradually loosens up as she works the left side of the canvas. So there's a lot of movement and things very fluid in it. And I, I know she remarked that she wished she could have made, like, bigger work like that, but with her arthritis, and with her age, too, because, again, she's, she's in her 80s at this point. Yeah, There's only so much she can physically do. Yeah. So like I mentioned to you, she's pulling inspiration from, like, the moon landing, also from the natural world. But it's all presenting abstract in her art. And she's doing so in the wake of these two art movements of the time. So we've got the the New York School. So think Jackson Pollock's abstract expressionism, right? Everything's really masculine and drippy. And then locally by Alma, there's the Washington Color School in D.C. And That's characterized by using acrylic paint, which was still fairly new up in the 1960s. And there was a lot of use of bold colors and these abstract designs, but they didn't have the same like drippy gestural qualities of the New York school. So they're a little bit more contained and organized in how they're painting. A little bit more regimented. Yeah. So Alma's work is considered more aligned with the Washington Color School. But, I mean, as a whole, her work fits in more broadly into the American abstract art movement of the 1960s and 70s. But at the time, wasn't necessarily included as such, I think in part because she was a black woman. Mm-hmm. It was very much a male, white male-dominated art movement. So, nice to say, Alma was celebrated in her time. So, in 1972, she became the first African-American woman to have a retrospective exhibition at the Whitney Museum of Art. Stop! Yeah, up in New York City. What? Uh, And that was followed by another solo show at Kokorian Gallery of Art in D.C. I think it's so fascinating that this woman was, like, almost in her 90s and she was getting, like, these shows. Like, she didn't stop and it, like, it paid off. Yeah, and she is, I think the third artist that I've covered who into like 60s plus their professional creative career like really takes off Mm -hmm. yeah so she's just another example of how it's just so easy to tell yourself oh I'm too old to do fill in the blank like no go for it no go for it yeah I keep telling that to a certain somebody one day okay you might be like (laughs) oh I'm I'm in my early 60s I'm too old be like no you legitimately could have 20 years mm-hmm. plus to look forward to of, like, this new career. Mm-hmm. So I think that's that's one nice thing to take away from this. You um, are not dead yet. <laughs> yes. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so I know Alma, she remarked about her Whitney show, quote, When I was a little girl down in Georgia, there were things we could do and things we couldn't. One of the things we couldn't do was go into museums, let alone think of hanging our pictures there. 
My times have changed. Just look at me now. No. I know. Just like the societal change and technological technological changes to happen from when she was born in like 1891. Yeah. All the way fast forward to the 1970s. And then seeing, yeah. Oh my God. That's just wild. Going from like everywhere finally having indoor plumbing and electricity to, oh, we've put man on man on the moon. Yeah. <laughs> And we're fighting the Russian commies. That's crazy. <laughs> that is insane. We're trying to Let's outrun see. a nuclear war. <laughs> well, it's just duck and cover. Duck and cover. Duck and cover. Oh, my God. All right. Now, I will say that Alma's work at the Whitney did have some pushback. So I, I think I might have covered this when we talked about soprano Dorothy Maynor in episode 44. Yeah. So in 1969, the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York City had a show titled Harlem on My Mind. Okay. So after, like, the civil rights protests and the assassination of Dr. Martin Luther King in the summer of 1968. Yeah. The following year, they wanted to, like, showcase the richness of traditionally black neighborhood of Harlem. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's all well and good, but essentially it was a show about, like, African Americans put together by a white guy. Mm. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Who, like, actively was, was like, yeah, I'll, I'll seek out, like, opinions and input from the black community mm-hmm. and then completely and then disregarded yeah. them mm-hmm. and, and did whatever the fuck you want. So, that, yeah, <laughs> that, that's some art history drama right there. But I mention it because from that incident, the Black Emergency Cultural Coalition was formed by Black artists. And the, quote, primary goal of the group was to agitate for change in Mm -hmm. the major art museums in New York City for greater representation of African-American artists and their work in these museums. And then African-American curatorial presence would be established. Okay. Yeah. It's crazy because it's like 50 years later and that could still very much be, that is still very much relevant. Yeah, still very much relevant. In the American museum. Things have a hard time of moving forward, apparently. Yes. But this group, they wanted more representation in the wake of the Mets whitewashing from this Harlem on My Mind show. Mm -hmm. So when a few years later Alma landed her show at the Whitney, they were like, cool, great. Yes, that's important. But also we're accusing the Whitney of tokenism. Mm, Yeah. Yeah, I'm just there to make you feel better about yourself. It was along the lines of, like, by them choosing an abstract artist, they were sidestepping a lot of racial and political issues, like, driving the civil rights era at that time. Mm. So on Alma's part, like, she didn't like the label of a black, of being a black artist, saying, quote, I'm a painter, I'm an American. Yeah. That's how she wanted herself seen. It doesn't matter, like. No, and for the type of work that she was doing, like, that wasn't directly feeding into her creative content. No. Now that was directly feeding into how her work was received and regarded. Right. But she wasn't creating because... Yeah. yeah. That wasn't a driving force for her. You know, she was pulling inside from these really introspective, like, individual moments of inspiration. Mm. So Alma, I mean, she really just wanted her art to be seen for what it is. And since Alma's death in 1978 at the age of 86, like, her work has been shown in the larger context of the abstract art movement. Sweet. Yeah, and and has continued to gain, like, national recognition. So I think it's really interesting that while I was Googling the images and scrolling through, there was a lot of, like, like, her art was on a lot of things you could buy. Like, it was just very different than scrolling through, like, other artists where, like, it's, it's, it's hard to find anything beyond pictures of their artwork. But, like, people went out of the way to teach her art to children. There are, like, little lessons you can teach children in school about Alma and her work. 
and you can tell you can tell them about her life like that's something that's I don't know like found their way into art classes which I think is interesting and really nice it's accessible especially with the abstract nature of it and how she painted yeah with these little bits I mean I could see how especially for some of her earlier 1970s work for like a teaching assignment you could have little kids like cut up different pieces of paper Mm -hmm. yeah and then use those little pieces of paper to assemble like um yeah so there's a lot to teach in like the form and the color Mm -hmm. but then also you're working on like their fine motor skills exactly so yeah it's so it's funny you mentioned that because i noticed more when you say things that had her artwork on it like I noticed there was someone who was touting, like, a tote bag you could buy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. With her work. Or there's a museum that has, like, a collection of jewelry based off of her work and how that's been kind of commercialized. I definitely saw a mask with her work on it. <laughs> oh, well, I feel like that's that's everywhere. But yeah. I think because of the abstract design, it does lend itself well to, like, fabric prints mm. because of the solid colors of it. Yeah, and that makes it easy to reproduce in the textiles. But yeah, your observation is way more fun than mine. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. That's way sweeter. <laughs> Here, I'm just like a jaded man. Oh, they're selling her shit on everything. And you're like, oh, kids are t- learning about art. Oh. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. I try to keep a, I don't know. my 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 mind is too dark. So when I can find happiness and light in something, I'll, I'll try to grasp onto that. Yeah, yeah. go for it. No, I think that's a good observation. Uh, but yeah, I mean, her impact has definitely been felt for decades after her death. Mm-hmm. And she's definitely has been established as a pretty important figure within the abstract art movement. But with the grand scheme of, you know, sexism and racism in this country, like most people you still don't know about her because we know about all the white guys right. who were seen as like the head figures of the abstract expressionism movement in the United States. So there is growing awareness of her work. So it's pretty cool. So in 2015, President Obama, they had one of her artworks put up in the dining room of the White House. That's so cool. Yeah. (laughs) So, I mean, that's really cool. But at the same time, you're like, wow, that was the first artwork by an African-American woman to be in the White House. That's insane. 2015. Wow. So it's a little bittersweet because you're like, that's so awesome. And you're like, oh, why hasn't this happened before? Yeah. Okay, that sucks. Um, Not great. I highly doubt the the following administration kept it <laughs> to the dining room. They ha- I mean, they have trash taste, let's be honest. Yeah. yeah. We're not going to talk about that. I don't even think they knew uh, who was by. They were just like really – I mean, did you see the house he lived in before they moved into the White House? Oh, my fucking God. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Um, yeah, and there, there's been numerous museum exhibitions of her work over the years. And there's actually one current show at a museum here in Virginia that I'm going to go see. Oh, yeah? Yeah, so she has a, a solo show right now at the Chrysler Museum down in Norfolk, Virginia, by Virginia Beach. Oh, nice. Yeah, so I'm going to be down there anyway visiting another museum. And I was like, wow, I might as well make a whole day of it and see her work in person. So I'm, I'm looking forward Your to Your museum hopper. You'll be like, I'm going to this one and this one and this one. <laughs> Everyone else gets a little tired after the second museum. I'm like, come on, guys, there's more. More art. No, no, no. One at a time, Megan. One at a time. <laughs> so when Alma passed away, her memorial service was held at Howard University. Aww. Yeah, that was pretty sweet. 
So it's nice to say that, you know, like I said, since her death in the 1970s, there's been growing appreciation for Alma's work and Alma's yet another artist that, you know, proves that you can do something new and make it big in your 80s. So that is Alma Thomas, my not depressing segment for today. That's so sweet. Yeah. Uh, what about you? Where are we? Are we staying in the United States for your marine biologist today? We're actually headed to Spain. What? Yay. I have not covered a Spanish artist at all. Yeah, like an actual legit Spanish artist. Is this our first time in Spain? I believe so. Yeah. I think so. Okay, cool. Oh, oh, can you talk with a Spanish lisp for the rest of the episode? Serantes. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> España. And we just lost our European Spanish listeners. Thank you. Thank you for that. I appreciate it. They know. They know what I'm talking about. Yeah. All right. Cool. So what Spanish Spaniard? What Spanish Spaniard? Oh, my God. Her name is Maria Angeles Alvarino Gonzalez. Gonzalez. Oh, my God. Did did you have to practice that or you're just your innate Hispanic? That was my innate, although I fucked up the last name. So let me get it a little better. Maria Angeles Alvarino Gonzalez. There you go. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. (laughs) She's born October 3rd, 1916 in Cerrantes, España. So that's Spain. So that's a coastal town in the northwest region of Spain for you. Okay. Yes. Dad was a doctor, mom was a pianist, and she could have gone either way, really. But, you know, we we both know which way she went, which (laughs) was science. (laughs) She was obsessed with science from a pretty early age, and she's particularly interested in natural sciences and zoology. So zoology is just literally the study of animals and the animal kingdom and all that good stuff. Okay, so super open-ended. Yeah. Uh, she attended several universities, and there was the University of Santiago de Compostela, graduated summa cum laude in 1933. Oh. Look at her. With what, I have no idea. <laughs> <laughs> it sounded like it was natural science because she was talking about bees, and then she liked talking about women from Don Quixote, which is interesting because I couldn't get through Don Quixote. I tried, like I was reading through, and I just like... I haven't read it. I've got two copies on my bookshelf. I didn't get very far. Like, it was just about a man trying to, I don't know. Like, he's, like, going after a woman who doesn't even know he exists, and I just don't care. I just don't care. Sorry. That is a story as old as time. As women, we don't care. I don't. I don't care. (laughs) Like, it's not, like, chivalrous. She doesn't. It's creepy. Yeah. It's creepy. It's not okay. Yeah, you think she would have just, like, picked, like, a simple science major, but people actually asked her about it, and her response was, Creativity and imagination are the basic ingredients for the scientists, as in the arts, because science is an art. Yeah, I am all for incorporating the arts into, like, STEM and turning STEM into STEAM. What? STEAM? Is that a joke? I'm very confused. No, because the science, it's like science, technology, (gasps) engineering, and and mathematics. Science, technology, engineering, arts, and mathematics. Okay. Yeah. Because you're right. You need that type of creative flexibility when you're problem solving. Oh, sure. You know, arts and science, it just manifests in two completely different ways. But it's the same foundational skill set. Yeah. So kudos for her for recognizing that. And I think we've spoken about that before. Like, it just... Like, it takes it takes two to make the world move forward, and mm-hmm. you can't have one without the other, so. Yay! 
1934, she attended the University of Madrid to study natural sciences, but then the Spanish Civil War happened, so she had to stop. All right, I'm going to be honest. The only somewhat connection that I have to the Spanish Civil War is Guillermo, Guillermo is the del Toro movie, <laughs> The Devil's Backbone. Guillermo del Toro? Yes. Yeah. Only thing I know about it, and a haunted orphanage out in, like, the fucking desert does not give me a comprehensive understanding of the Civil War at all. No. So I'm just going to tap out on this one. No. Oh, God. No, no, no. Um, yeah, I don't know. I didn't really – I figured you might have known, but really, I just – it's, you know, stories old as time. People are mad at other get people. A, they fought. dictator. Yeah. Trying to consolidate power. Yeah. Yada, yada. Men throwing their dicks around. Whatever. So she hung out at home and read a lot, and she focused on learning English and French, which, oddly enough, helped her in her later research studies. Um, A lot of research was being done in France and England at the time, and, you know, she couldn't read the latest journals, and she couldn't understand the work that was being done. So all that helped. Right. 1940. I like it. Cool. Right. So just, just bits and pieces. 1940, she got married to a captain of the Spanish War Navy, who was also a Spanish knight. Well. <laughs> they just don't make them like that any day. No. These days, do they? No, they don't. <laughs> it's a fucking nightmare. <laughs> yeah, but then they had a daughter. Just enough time to get married and start a family, but then the war ended. And she wanted to continue her master's degree. So she did that. University of Madrid. Madrid. Sorry. Graduated in 1941. She and the family moved to Ferrol, which is right next to Cerrantes. They didn't go very far. So she taught biology, zoology, botany, and geology as a professor at various schools. So, you know, you got to hustle as an academic. You can't have just one job. Yeah, especially if you haven't gotten tenure. Yeah, exactly. No, she's got to go, go, go. Right? 1948, her husband had an assignment in Madrid, and it was there that... Maria joined the ranks of the Spanish Institute of Oceanography, which was a fishery. Oh, okay. Yes. So we've totally talked about fisheries before. Yes. <laughs> yeah, even the, one of our episode titles, like the Bureau of Fishies. The Bureau of Fishies. The lady yeah. who wrote about <laughs> pollution in the United States, runoff water. Rachel Carson. how everyone was getting yeah. poisoned and going to die. <laughs> Rachel yes. Carson, her, yeah. Her. So yeah, fisheries are all about fish. They're all about research, regulating them. So this one was one in Spain, 1948. They moved there and she ended up getting a research position there. Her job was as a biologist, a research biologist with the Spanish Institute of Oceanography, and she was technically a fellow there, strictly academic. She could not mm-hmm. be on a boat because of her super outdated maritime laws. Apparently, women weren't allowed. No on a boat. girls allowed. Yeah. It was a boys' club. Lots of butt Silly. fucking. I'm sorry, what? <laughs> <laughs> Milena, your mom listens to this. <laughs> I mean, let's be honest. <laughs> Uh, Her research was on fouling on the ships and zooplankton, and not the fouling that I just spoken about. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) Sorry, I'm in a place today. It's called biofouling, and it is just the accumulation of microorganisms, plants, algae, tiny animal creatures on ship equipment. So, oh, okay. Yes, extensive accumulation hinders the operations of these ships, damaging things like propulsion systems, other pretty important yeah, parts of the vessels. Yeah. So we got to keep things clean and going. Then there was that, and then Wait, so like what? sea, like sea gunk. That's what she was specialized in. Yes, she loves sea gunk, especially 
plankton. But okay. We'll get to it in a second. 1952, she got her doctorate in experimental psychology, analytical chemistry, and plant ecology from the University of Madrid. She keeps going back. Oh, like like someone else I know. You know. She was then relocated to a lab in Vigo. It's for the same fishery. The Spanish Institute of Oceanography was just a lab that was closer to the ocean because Vigo is right above Portugal and it's like on the coast. Okay. Yeah, because like Madrid's inland. Yes. Like it's the, you're going to have to drive to get to any ocean. Surrounded by land. Or sea. Yes. You know I wouldn't be me without diving into zoology and marine biology, right? Yeah, go for it. That's why at least half of us are here. <laughs> That's My fair. half. Sorry, Not, they might have tipped out already. They might have. It's fine. It's all good. That's even assuming I have a half. <laughs> it's actually just me and his mom. Still shaking her head. Because you said butt fucking. Shaking her head more because I just said that. She's like, I don't even know if I can listen to the rest of this episode. These gals. They've ruined it for me. <laughs> Uh, we got some new listeners. It's fine. I have a certain friend who he's been going through them from the beginning. And I can't believe he's still going. He just sent me a screenshot of he's on episode 13, I think. Oh, that's early days. Bora. I know. I'm like, oh, my God. I love you. Thank you. And he actually um, gave me somebody to cover. So I might do her next episode. Okay, yeah. cool, cool. We love suggestions. We do. So what do you think of when you think of Plankton? Okay, I'm going to be honest. SpongeBob. Yeah. yeah, I know. Yeah, I think of that little evil bastard. Yeah, I know. He tries so hard, though. <laughs> what is it? Him and his rusty bucket? His, I think it is the rusty bucket. Or is it the chum bucket? Either way. He's got a wife named Karen. Oh, does he? Yes. Oh. His, his wife is a computer. Oh, that's right. Yeah. Sorry. It's it's obviously been a while since I've watched Spongebob. I watch it but every time I go over to my friend Perry's house because he loves Spongebob. His dog loves Spongebob. <laughs> it's great. No children in the house. No. Just people who are in their 30s. <laughs> and a dog. Yeah. So it's not one specific species. It's literally an umbrella term for a diverse collection of organisms found in water or air that are almost always unable to propel themselves against the current. Wait, wait. So they're in water. Yes. But air? Yeah. Like spores and shit. Like everywhere or just kind of like near the ocean water? Near the ocean water. Yeah. Okay. All right. So it's not like in my recording closet. I'm technically breathing in little plankton. No. In central Virginia no, right now. No, you are not. You're good. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> all right. Cool. Just checking. Has, I, all right. Um, I mean, I don't know. You're the science one. I don't know the truth. <laughs> no. I mean, for a minute there, I had to I had to take a double take too. I was like, am I breathing in? What's happening? I don't know. But yeah. No. So some of them can sometimes move against a current, but most of them are just like floating. So there. The word plankton comes from the Greek word planktos, which is roughly translated to wander or drifter. But they are a crucial, like plankton are a crucial source of like marine like food and just like mm-hmm. necessary in an yeah. ecosystem. They're huge. They can literally be anything. They have little subgenres of plankton. So virioplankton, which are the viruses, bacterial plankton, bacteria, mycoplankton, myco being the the prefix for fungus, and then phytoplankton, plants, algae specifically. Fun fact, phytoplankton is the source of 70% of the world's breathable oxygen. Not really. Not rainforests. Not like trees. No. Yeah. I that's cool. Kudos to that. <laughs> I was like, what? I it blew yeah, my mind. 
how do they fare with this whole global warming and rising sea temperature they're not, changes? They're not. That's... It's bad. Okay. That's bad. Okay. They're also, like, our farming practices are shit, too. So we overfeed them with things like phosphorus. And they love phosphorus. Oh, so they... And that's when we get, like, those algae blooms mm-hmm. like, and, like, the red tides. Yeah, that, like... yeah, yeah, yeah. Kill things. Yeah, so the overgrowth of basically algae phytoplankton on these bodies of water, it blocks oxygen, sunlight, and nutrients from getting to the organisms underneath the surface of the water. Really intense and harmful cyanide effects on aquatic life. Like if edible fish were caught and become seafood on your plate, but they were munching on phosphorus-loving phytoplankton when they were alive, suddenly there are toxins in the fish, and that's how people get sick. Beaches are shut down because people and animals get sick if they swim in it. Harmful gases are emitted. Fish farmers have to stop fishing in certain areas that have these harmful algae blooms because they understand that the fish isn't safe to eat. So, again, the red tide, which also Mm -hmm. in turn messes with our economy. So if you're not, like, an environment lover and you're a money lover, there's your little tie-in. You're welcome. You know, but the really big side effect is that the aquatic life underneath the phytoplankton could just die. Super crazy, delicate ecosystem. We have to be kind to it. Just another reason for sustainable farming. But anyway, these are not the kind of plankton Maria researched. Okay, she she back to the plankton that are gunking up the bottom of ships. Yeah, so I just needed to tell you about these okay. these other plankton because the oceans are fucked and so are we. Just wanted to. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And even just having a, an idea of a, the variety of subspecies mm-hmm. of plankton. Like, it's not just that one guy on SpongeBob. No. No. There's more. But oddly enough, Sheldon Plankton is part of what Maria was into, which is zooplankton, which are the... Really? They weren't specifically... This episode <laughs> brought to you by SpongeBob. This, this, this particular... So I'm saying they're they're part of the zooplankton. But zooplankton, again, is such a general umbrella. So her... Okay. It covers, like, animal-like plankton. So she didn't cover what was called the... I think they were... Oh, I wrote them down. Plankton is a cotopode, like a shellfish kind of plankton. Zooplankton is the most animal-like of the bunch. Little baby jellyfish, tiny lobsters. Hers were, she had two in particular that she loved. First was the Tritognatha, and these were see-through predatory marine worms. Oh, yeah. That's- Fun. Terrifying. Is t- terrifying is the word you're looking for. <laughs> <laughs> right. I'll keep that in mind next time I'm near a large body of water. Oh, yeah. Cool. Yeah, yeah. It's great. And then the Siphonophora, which they look like a chain of multi-headed jellyfish. They're not. They're colonies of single-celled organisms that are ocean drifters and incapable of moving through the water on their own. It's intense. Okay. They glow in the water. You are not selling me on plankton. They're, I'm sorry. They just sound utterly useless. They, aside from the whole giving us oxygen they thing. They give us oxygen and they help feed other marine wildlife. Everything. Yeah. Everything. They are yeah. necessary. They're gross but necessary. <laughs> I know, but on like a biological level, you're like, these things are useless. Mm, yeah. I mean, some, some honestly, like the bacteria, plankton, they're literally just protozoa, single-celled organisms that are just like bloop, bloop. Tell me about creepy little plankton worms that want to eat my face. I don't, these things are so small. I'm not sure they can get their mouth around any part of you. <laughs> Slowly eat my face, then. It's a group effort. If they can manage to get to my face because they can't move on their own. That is useless. <laughs> a, a, fundamentally, that's a really big biological flaw. 
We're like, I call this creature into existence. <laughs> Yo, good luck. You can't move. You can't move. You just, you're just there. Uh, this one, I mean, I think this one moves a little bit. So some plankton can move. And I think okay. it's this guy. And then there's some, actually, there's a little bit of link. There are some jellyfish that are considered plankton and they can move. There's like a tiny lobster. I'm looking at some little scientific illustrations of planktons and they are wild. Yeah, it's insane. You're like, what? How did this happen? Google everybody, including Megan, because they're really cute. Well, I think they're pretty. They're pretty. At least I think they're pretty. Type in S as in Sam, I, P as in Paul, H-O-N-O-P-H-O-R-A. Found it. Got it. That's not one single Ew. creature. Ew. What? They're cute. It's just a giant weird line of creepy things. <laughs> they're, they're cute. That's not cute. <sighs> That's like a rope of creepiness in the sea. Uh, I don't know if I would say a rope of creepiness. Yeah, it's like a big giant squiggly monster of, ew, I touched it. I brushed it with my foot. Okay, maybe not this one. This one has legs. Useless legs. It doesn't move. The legs are just there, I think. I just like that they glow in the dark. Yeah. No, I did find an image of them glowing in the dark on the bottom of a dark seafloor. And you're right. That's cool. But that's also a 100-foot-long creepiness in the dark in the ocean. Oh, not that one. Th- I don't want to meet. Not that one. I was talking about the one that looks like little, um, like, bell sprouts from Pokemon. Okay. I see the weird bell sprout thing. Yeah. That guy. Isn't he cute? That is a minority because the rest of these images are creepy as fuck. So those are her two favorite ones, the the predatory worms and the the rope of the rope of many things. Cool. Great. I don't think I'm gonna have fish for dinner tonight. Thank <laughs> you for that. I guess people liked that she liked them a lot because in nineteen fifty three and nineteen fifty four she traveled to England on a British Council grant to research more of them. Okay. That's cool. Yeah. That was in Plymouth, so that's southwest England on the coast. It was there that she was actually allowed on a ship or two. Oh, goodness. Wow. And she didn't sink them with her mere presence of being a woman oh, on a ship? Oh, my God. Scandalous. She was I the know. first woman allowed on board British vessels. I mean, that's pretty cool. That's pretty exciting, yeah. She went on a number of scientific cruises in the Atlantic and Pacific Oceans. She studied plankton in the English Channel in the Bay of Biscay. And that research made some anomalies like show up in the distribution of like where these species were. And it helped us realize that the Atlantic waters moved in a different and unusual way. So we could, like, map where waters were going. So that's cool. Oh, okay, cool. Yeah. You know, migration, all that good stuff. 1955, she heads back to Vigo, creates new tools to study plankton. So these are new nuts for research that we still use today. Mm-hmm. 1951, 1957, she starts publishing so many things, obviously about her favorite wormy things. It's so wild. Okay. <laughs> 1956, she receives a Fulbright Fellowship to do research in Massachusetts. There, she meets the president of the first oceanographic congress in the U.S. Her name is Mary Sears. And Mary was like, yes, I love this woman. <laughs> nice. So much so that she actually straight up calls the director... Woods Hole Oceanographic Institute in La Jolla, California, talks to the director, his name is Roger Ravel, and he goes, hire her, or she goes, hire her, and he does, and she was from then on their leading researcher, funded both federally and privately. I mean, hey, learning English while she was trying to weather a civil war, (laughs) I mean, that came in handy. Yeah, like, you never, never stop moving forward, because it doesn't matter what you do, like, it'll all come together in the end. 
Yeah. Yeah. She got a second doctorate in 1967. Why not? <laughs> it was based off, you know, what? <laughs> it's just amazing all these degrees that people could earn when you weren't guaranteed to go 30 grand plus in debt for every single one. It's so nice. It's so nice. Yeah. But this one was based off of the research she did in California. So, like, she submitted okay. it and they were like, well, yes, here you go. <laughs> nice. In 1970, she started working at the National Marine Fishery Service in the United States. She was there until retirement in 1987. And then, Mm. um, I mean, throughout her career, she discovered 22 new marine species. Of plankton? Of, of, yeah, of plankton. So there was one, like, jellyfish, but it was specifically the Siphonophora and the Chiatognatha. I don't do Latin very well, guys. 2005, she passes away in La Jolla in California. Okay, so by the time everything was said and done, she was a member of several fellowships, fisheries, societies, associations that were all marine biology-based. There were sea vessels named after her. King Juan Carlos I and Queen Sophia of Spain awarded her the Great Silver Medal of Galicia for her research, so they were royally acknowledged. Her daughter would complete and translate a manuscript of birds and marine life that Maria researched and wrote about, like she had finished before she passed away. So these particular Mm -hmm. animals were found during the Malaspina expedition, which was actually a historical, political, and scientific trip around the world, funded by the King of Spain in 1789-1794. Oh, yes. So Maria, I guess, found it super interesting and like compiled research about these animals. And the expedition hit every continent, so there was, like, a lot to work from. Yeah. I don't know. I guess it was just, like, a pet project of hers and her... Yeah, her little... Yeah. That was her version of having a podcast, just <laughs> what she did in the spare time. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And her daughter's like, I need to get this out, so I'm going to translate this and send this out on her way. And then... Oh, um, that's really cool. Yeah, it was very sweet. And then she also, her daughter also, in 2011, I guess, met with a council back in Ferrol, Spain, to put together an archive that was created and maintained by her mom and scientists that she knew. I don't know if it's finished yet, but it's supposed to be in, like, around that hometown. I know it was Ferrol wasn't her hometown. Cervantes was. But Ferrol and Cervantes are, like, neighboring cities. So Okay. Close enough. Yeah. Close enough. <laughs> but, yeah. No. She was definitely recognized in her lifetime and beyond. So. Look at that. <laughs> We've got two feel-good episodes. <laughs> Things are going suspiciously well. Oh, no. (laughs) Thank you to everyone who has made it this far. We definitely appreciate it. So, Milana, if people want to find out more about the type of artwork that my painter did or want to see pictures of your honestly completely terrifying little plankton things, worms, creatures, where where can they go? (laughs) Where can they find out more? They, oh my gosh, we have a website, myfavoritefeminist.com. We have an Instagram and Facebook, My Favorite Feminist. We have a Twitter that's at Milena Megan. That's at M-I-L-E-N-A-M-E-G-A-N. We have an email. Let us know if you really want to. Info at myfavoritefeminist.com. You can listen to us on any major podcast platforms. And it takes two seconds to like, subscribe, add, share, do whatever you need to do. Let us know in any comment section your favorite SpongeBob character. Oh, man. The older I get, the more I identify with Squidward. Yeah, that's my favorite, too. I watched the show when I was a kid, and I was like, oh, he's so grumpy. And then now I'm old, and I'm like, oh, I totally get it. Yeah, I totally 100% get it. 
Yeah, yeah, there's a lot of feels with Squidward yeah. the older you get. <laughs> like, I relate so hard to you. I can totally understand. This is how a crew... As a kid, I had no idea. <laughs> this is how a crew of 30-year-olds can still sit in a townhome, as, like a Southern Philly townhome with their dogs, and just watch Spongebob and still be okay. Are you, though? Are you? No. <laughs> <laughs> All right. All right. Well, I'll be sticking to my murder mysteries, but... In the meanwhile, let us know. And until then, we'll see you guys next time. Bye. You know what I don't like? The underwater fish. Those guys are stuff of nightmares. Okay. You know, the really deep water ones? Yeah. Like, yeah, with the little thingy float in front of them, the little light. They're like, mm, look at other fishies. It's the light. <laughs> Just like that.